to do is kind of back up and get a broader picture of how um, situations in life challenges marriages and relationships. There are a number of ways we can approach approach this as we talk about it. I'm going to get into some fundamentals. It should cool down in a little bit. I'm going to get into some fundamentals, but as we deal with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll probably deal with it just a couple times. <clears throat> what I want you to think about is marriage in a certain context. Marriage in a certain context. Don't minimize the context. Because really, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is much more about a context than it is about marriage proper. So I want you to be keeping that in mind as we work through this set of instructions that um, that is going to come about. Because life li is lived in a set of contexts. Everybody's life is the consequence of the soil in which that life is sown. So if the soil is good, then the outcome can be predictable. If the soil is compromised, then the outcome of even a good thing can be problematic. If the soil is bad, then certainly a good thing is going to be subject to some real, real challenges. And that's what I want you to get here. In the backdrop of us talking about the principles of marriage, Paul is dealing with it because of a kind of environment and situation and epic that they are in that requires him to talk this way. Of course, you can take notes as well. We'll pick up next Tuesday with this one more time. So let me open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to kind of just get at what's going on in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7 in our outline. Father, we thank you again for your kindness and your mercy to us. Thank you for everyone who has come out. We thank you for granting us hunger for your word. We are, <clears throat> we are desirous to know you more fully <clears throat> and to serve you better. We are hungry for reality and we know you are the true and living God and, and therefore reality proceeds from who you are. We are hungry for accuracy of understanding and, uh, and application in our life. So we are deferring to your word and we thank you that we have a place we can come to and people with whom we can engage this journey and, and, and begin to work through these matters of life. You have told us um, that there is a way of life and that when we pursue you in that, you will make manifest to us the wisdom that amounts to a good life. So as we look into the scenario with which you have allowed history to be carved out and codified in a portion of scripture for us to learn from, help us to truly learn from this and be able to take away both interpretation as well as application for ourselves. We're asking this on the grounds of your son's blood, which is our cleansing, our purging, our sanctification, and our washing. We're asking you for this on the grounds of his righteousness, our standing before you, him and us, we and him, we and you and you and us. We're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, understand the precious moment of Coram Deo. Speak to our hearts, we pray, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, so what I want to do is read verses 1 through 7 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to come back and work through our points. I'm going to be making a number of applications that are going to be kind of straightforward, and hopefully it will inspire you to take notes. The Apostle Paul says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife does not have power, authority, over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband does not have power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, 
except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not by commandment, for I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. So I want to stop right there. And again, I know it's kind of hard sometimes if we don't, if we haven't worked through a particular text of scripture and we're coming up on a bunch of imperatives and, and uh, a matter of fact statements that's being made here. But let's see if we can break this into four frames. First and foremost, what I would see that's important in chapter seven, verse one, that I want you to join me in is the presupposition that marriage is heterosexual in nature. That's the first thing I want you to lift up out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Don't want you to miss anything else other than that right now because it's important for us to know that back then, in those days, there was no argument about what constituted marriage. And, and so a lot of the benefits that you and I have out of Scripture study is that scripture will talk to you and me from a set of presumptions, a set of assumptions that it is expecting you to already have. And one of them is that marriage is between what? A man and a woman. So now that's the title of biblical worldview of marriage. And so when Paul opens up, he opens up not arguing for, not defending, not explaining, which we have to do today, not arguing for, not defending, not explaining. He is talking to people who know that universally everywhere in the world, marriage has always and only been between a man and a woman. So as you are thinking about marriage, particularly for those of you who are on your way toward that gracious institution you want to be resolved that you are fixed you are fixed in your worldview in your understanding in your epistemological resolve in your 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 knowing that marriage is designed for a a coupling of a male and a female that's the reason why i'm highlighting the heterosexual marriage over what fornication so now the the driving factor for the topic that Paul is bringing up has to do with his helping the Corinthians resolve a problem that is in the church and is in society and in our world. And so he's killing two birds with one stone. He is stating that marriage, heterosexual marriage, a biblically world-driven, worldview-driven marriage will resolve the temptation of fornication. Did that make some sense? All right, so now what I was saying earlier <clears throat> about needing to contextualize this, needing to understand it in its context is because if you take the opening proposition of 1 Corinthians 7, verse one, uh, and decontextualize it, decouple it from its context and just make it a general proposition, it may sound like it is an exclusive imperative. And what I mean by that is it may sound like the only way you deal with the inclination and desire for fornication is get married. And that's not what it's saying. And the only way you know that is to derive from the context why it is that Paul is introducing the subject of marriage around the issue of fornication. So what I want to do with you is work with you on how to infer or how to deduce or how to um, uh, induce from the text an application that's consistent with the meaning of the proposition. So we will go, we'll go like this. Heterosexual marriage um, is designed to overcome fornication but it's not designed to overcome fornication by itself. Heterosexual marriage is a solution to fornication, but it is not a solution to fornication by itself. Heterosexual marriage 
is not equivalent to never fornicating. You see what I'm doing with you? I'm expanding that simple proposition into conditions that would uh, give us insight into the reality that there's an ellipsis on this proposition. That is, there is something beyond the statement because this is where people will make a mistake in thinking. Um, heterosexual marriage, and so now I just use the term marriage because we're talking marriage now. Marriage solves certain things. Marriage does not solve everything. Right, and you would be wrong to believe that if I want to solve the issue of fornication, as soon as I get married, that's solved. You would be wrong. And if you, if you fall prey to that, then you're falling prey to um, not thinking through well propositions that are simple in their introduction, but are profound in their implications if you have a proper understanding of the context of that proposition. So in the opening proposition, what the Apostle Paul says is, now concerning the things whereof you have written unto me, and he uses the word things in the plural, there are a bunch of things that the church at Corinth was asking Paul about. So Paul has already got a, you know, Bible answer man uh, cue, cue list. He's got a bunch of them. And now he's answering some. And uh, at the top of the list, he's dealing with, you know, the issue of marriage, because obviously the church at Corinth is struggling with that. All right, so if, if in our context we are dealing with a struggle, and we are, <clears throat> then you and I can know <clears throat> that marriages take place in the midst of difficult times. Marriages take place in the midst of struggling scenarios. Marriages take place in the midst of unstable times, trying times, difficult times, uh, unstable times, marriages will take place. So I want you to now understand that what we have, are doing is building a scenario around a proposition that means something to us. The idea of marriage means something to us if we are married. The idea of marriage means something to us if we want to be married. And so, yes, Lord, what I want to do is learn as much about marriage as I possibly can, particularly marriage in the context of all of these kind of different scenarios that come up, okay? Because what I don't want to do is make the assertion that marriage is a panacea that fixes everything, but that Paul is asserting that when it comes to the conditions and situations that are normative in life, particularly in the context of heterosexual relationships, male and female relationships. He is saying that historically, the way that we solve the challenge of male-female relationships is that it is framed in a covenant relationship that puts parameters on that relationship so that that relationship does not default to behaviors and conducts that would actually spoil that relationship when it is not done in covenant. Does that make some sense? All right, so I know I'm being a little verbose, but I'll pick up on that here as we deal with our subpoints. Because humanity has discovered if we enter into a covenant of relationship that's called marriage, then the natural processes that emerge up out of the complexity of relationships can now be managed it can be managed now so that we don't derail too bad in the context of relationships in ways in which they are antisocial and immoral and therefore self and other destructive. That's what that's about. So what Paul said was, I wrote unto you that it is not good for a man nevertheless to avoid fornication. Let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. When Paul makes the statement, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, it's because what Paul is stating is that the idea of a woman being touched by a man draws us into a level of relationship dynamic that requires understanding privileges and problems at the intimacy level. When he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, what he is saying is it's because once you enter into a touch tone type 
of male-female relationship is going to require you understanding privileges and problems that come with intimacy. Did that make some sense? All right, so I, what he's saying to them and what he would say to you and me and what he would say to your typical young person that is now um, within the parameters of what I'm going to sh show you in a little bit is what we call the biological imperative. Uh, what he's saying to a young person who is in the biological imperative uh, syndrome is that you want to be careful about touching about being in a state of relationship where it elevates to emotional attachment. And I want you to be able to mark that down for those of you who are listening objectively, because I want to help you with that. The word touch here doesn't mean <clears throat> do not physically touch. That's not what he means. Right. So let's, let's see if we can work this through a little bit, because I want to just take the time to draw it out. Like if, if Paul was saying, don't do any physical touching of the male and female at all, we would have ruinous relationships at the sociological level emotionally. If we had to avoid touching each other, it would mean that we would be so fragile that we wouldn't have any ability to actually empathize, sympathize, or have deep, meaningful relationships with each other at the sensory level. Does that make some sense? If, if, if the idea was don't ever touch at all, don't shake hands, don't rub shoulders, don't sit, sit next to each other in the chairs, all of these things become, you know, COVID mandates at a certain point, wouldn't they? They become COVID mandates now. And, and what that's going to do is serve to create a kind of hypervigilance and paranoia about the danger of the proximity coexistence between males and females. Something for which children, they would break every day of their lives because they could never, ever survive if they were told that they could not interact with their siblings or their friends, no matter what their gender or, or, or sex would be. They wouldn't be healthy at all. They would be, they would be maladjusted. It would be problematic. I mean, we could just create a litany of, 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 of um, sort of um, obsessive compulsive disorder orientations around never touching at any time. But the term touch here, haptomai, in the Greek, in its original form, means to touch with the purpose of changing something. It means to touch with the purpose of changing something. That's what I want to work with you on. This phrase that Paul is using here is used by Luke as a physician multiple times in the Gospel of Luke as the mediatorial mechanism by which Christ healed people. He touched them. Did that come home? He touched them. And so the idea here is touch, if allowed to elevate, is powerful in its capacity to change the dynamics of the relationship. Did that come home? Touch, if left to elevate itself at the emotional level, it's powerful enough to change the relationship. Now, let's, let's work that through just a little bit, if you don't mind, if you guys are not in a hurry. The changing of relationships is not bad. I don't want you to infer, uh-oh, I'm feeling a certain kind of way. Unless you don't have control over your emotions, that's another conversation. But if you have control over your emotions, if you are well-balanced, if you are understanding that we all have a range of emotions, necessarily so, and that on that spectrum of emotional diversity and emotional makeup, what you and I would want to do is have relationships with people that elevate at the psychological and emotional level in order to strengthen that relationship at the level of platonic intimacy. Did that come home? I'm going to say it again so you can get it. 
We're not dealing with the binary distinction between either I'm all in with you at the highest levels of emotional intimacy that constitutes a need to get married, or I don't have any kind of emotional and psychological feelings towards you at all. Those extremes, too, would be wrong, wouldn't they? Am I making some sense? Right. So a healthy person would understand the spectrum of emotional sensibility, emotional investment, emotional attachment to someone. A, a man should have certain levels of emotional attachment to other men. If they mean something to you, if those persons mean something to you, how do we go to battle together? If we don't have a deep kinship with one another, how do we defer to the other person? If we don't have a profound sense of connection with that other person, how do we engage in any kind of endeavor, any kind of enterprise, if we don't have that level of emotional and psychological commitment to that person? Am I making some sense? Right. And therefore, healthy relationships are always going to have a spectrum of emotionally elevated attachment factors to them. You see this with kids. I love this about kids. Kids will be deeply committed to each other. Boys with boys, girls with girls. Wanting to hang out, wanting to spend time. Being The word happy becomes a generalized sort of indicator of how a good and deep and impactful relationship can be, right? Our, my, my son is happy when he hangs out with his friend, Jimmy. Why? Because their relationship is not disjointed. It's not mechanical. It's profoundly connected at the psycho-emotional level. It's just not moving over into sexual dimensions. And God fully expects for us to be able to have relationships with each other at the emotionally invest, uh, invested and psychological level. Does that come home, ladies and gentlemen? Right. I'm not praying for you if I don't like you. If I am doing it, I'm being counterintuitive. If I like you, then you're on my mind. That's the very idea of likeness. Let every seed bearing herb bear fruit of its own kind. So when we are in likenesses, we are close enough to each other mentally that we remember each other. We care for each other. We want each other's welfare. We want each other's best to emerge. And so when we are liking each other because we are experiencing a positive feedback loop by being in each other's presence, if something's going on in your life, my soul is praying for you. Does that make some sense? All right. So when I was saying that if I don't like you, I'm not praying for you. I'm simply saying that the idea of dislike would probably fall out in areas in which we find ourselves so radically incompatible, which can happen, that I leave you to other people. I'm not saying just because I'm incompatible with you, the other 8 billion people on the planet are incompatible with you too. You may have more people with whom you are incompatible with then I am with you, and that completely resolves the fact that Jesse is just not part of your inner circle. You can be very well off. You can be fine. In fact, you probably are better off without me being in your circle. And this will help you and I as well in terms of knowing this. You and I don't have to be liked by everybody. There's plenty enough people on the planet for that to work itself out. But what I am getting at right while I'm talking to you is how important it is for you and I to have a healthy understanding of the emotional ranges essential to elevated emotional attachment. Does that make some sense? All right, because, you know, when we are in the heterosexual field of working through um, the possibility of what we call the um, biological imperative, we have to first discover whether or not there are people with whom we like that might become potential candidates for liking them more. And so under point number one, the, the, the phrase heterosexual marriage over fornication precludes three subpoints I just want to touch on briefly and you, you and I can deal with it later. The privilege and problem of what? Intimacy. And don't take that and turn that into sex. 
Intimacy just means closeness. Don't turn it into sex. Extricate it from sex and simply say the privileges of relationship that ends up intimating. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse uh, 9 through 12. Listen to it. You've heard it before. I want you to be able to apply it here. Here's what Solomon said. Two are better. Did that come home? Two are better. Now, that's not always the case. If you're incompatible, it may not be better. Two are better than one. So that's, that's an axiom. We agree with that. And then he's going to argue why two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor. So now think about this. The relationship between two are the constituent parts that creates a labor force. The relationship between two are constituent parts that create a labor force. Don't turn this into a big old job. Just turn this into a relationship. In a relationship, you have to labor. Whatever the nature of that relationship is, you and that other person have to now co-labor. Didn't I say that in the marriage context? And so when people become friends, it's because they have collaborated at length in an exercise repetitively to discover that they have um, qualities that they share. And after a while, they become comfortable with that other person. And then they see the benefit and profit of that other person being in their life. So I'm going to go back to the child analogy before we get trapped again in sex, which, you know, our culture just loves to jump into that. If you have a son or a daughter, you discover as they are getting older and not too much older that they will be healthier if they have friends. So friendship is an intimacy level. It's an elevated emotional attachment level because there are some people that are that are like, you know, constituents. There are people in your circle, but they're not your friends. And then even friendship has different levels of commitment, attachment, emotional investment. You would agree with that. And so when you find that your son or your daughter ends up meeting somebody where they really get along, you see it by the way they co-labor. They get into little enterprises. They engage in tasks. And they're motivated now. Those two now are actually building each other up, aren't they? And we're happy about that when we're parents. Ah, he's got a friend. She's got a friend. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor. Verse 10. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. Aha. So in the context of the idea of intimacy, which requires two, when one of the two is in danger or is harmed, the other person, because they have an elevated emotional attachment, is going to be there to do what they can to help that person recover from that stumbling. Agreed? It doesn't have anything to do with sex here. This has everything to do with relationship, healthy relationships. But woe to him that is alone when he what? Right. So so we can see the disparity between a person that lives in an isolated state that doesn't have the capacity to develop friendships, um, being vulnerable in a world all by themselves. Right. And then it goes on to say uh, when he falls for he hath not another to help him up. Verse 11, a few more verses. And again, if two lie together now, Again, once we get here, we're not necessarily talking marriage. We're not necessarily talking marriage. How many scenarios have occurred in your life growing up where you have slept in the same space with your friend or your sister or your cousin or your aunt or your whomever? Am I making sense? Right, see, in, uh, in poor countries, in Middle Eastern countries, in Africa, in the country, in the in the hood, I grew up. I, I remember when I was little. I was I never knew what it meant for a long time to sleep in my own bed. I'm like, you know, it beca it began to be a drag at four or five years old because I'm in the bed with somebody else, and their foot is pushing me in the back of my head. The hand, right? Because you got some people that sleep really bad. 
So nighttime is tough, right? And I remember me and my brother, I, 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 would, I would sleep down at the bottom. My head is at the bottom of the bed and his head is at the other side of the bed because I didn't want to hear him snoring, right? But then I got down there, you know, and he was, his legs were long, and so there go those big old feet coming at, at you, and you got to kind of protect yourself. Um, but you're used to sleeping with him. There's a relationship elevated at the psycho-emotional level. Does that make some sense? Right, it's important for us to grasp that um, because, and that's the thing that I did enjoy about sleeping with my brother or my cousins is that about 10 minutes in, it was warm under the sheets. I loved that. I got that body heat. It helped you go to sleep, right? The analogy is that of if you have to sleep by yourself, you can be cold. And we have technology that puts into that today. We know that. And if you're smart, get your, get your electric blanket or whatever you got to do. Just, just don't be cold because you don't have to anymore. But back in the day, it was the case. Verse 12. Verse 12. And if one prevails against him, two shall what? Uh-huh. So now the relationship has taken on these multi-factored dynamics that constitutes the efficiency of dealing with life because you got somebody that's dealing with life with you. And what you discover in life is not everybody's your friend. What you also discover in life, life is you're not perfect. What you also discover is, is you can be pretty nasty yourself. And what you discover is that sometimes you can enter into conflicts with people and, uh, and it creates wars. And your poor friend has to put up with hanging out with you because you, you ran off at the mouth and you created an enemy that wants to get into your butt. And they would get into your butt if it weren't for the fact that you got your friend with you. Did that make some sense? Right. So, like, I'm, you know, I expect my friend to stand up with me if somebody gets at me. Now, he can, he can get at me afterwards and say, Jess, why did you do that, you know? Why did you get us in trouble like that? But I expect him to be there for me because I would be there for him. And this is how you continue doing life. Does that make sense? All right, of course. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. You can take all these verses, and I've done them a thousand times in the context of marriage, have we not? I've preached them in the context of marriage and talked about the beauty and splendor and advantages of a husband-wife team, and so you can run with that. So under point number one, heterosexual marriage over fornication, the privilege and problems of intimacy, the resolve and integrity of covenant, the resolve and integrity of covenant. So if Paul says you want to solve the problem of slipping into the darkness of fornication, get married. That's Genesis 2, 22. Please, let's just kind of look at Genesis 2, 22 through 24. Here's what God says. And the Lord took a rib from a man and he made from the man and he made a woman and brought her unto the man. So now the man is dealing with a relationship. A relationship has been brought to him. A lot of people make a lot out of that in the context of marriage. I would say be careful about that, but that's okay. In this case, God literally had to bring her to him. Okay, because there was nobody else around. So God is the one doing the FedEx. Okay, he's he's a UPS man. He he bringing packages. And here she is, verse 24. And so Adam responds to this gift that's given to him, uh, this package, Genesis 2, 24. Um, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become what? Right. And so if you look at that verse carefully, this is called a process. This is called a process. This one here is the overarching challenge and blessing, but extremely difficult process of marriage. Where two individual persons, one over here, one over here, in the context of covenant, now are called to draw near to each other. Did that make some sense? They're called to draw near to each other. You're not here just because you signed the covenant. I'm sorry. Please understand that you're not here. Some people never get here even though they're married. Right. So we start here because we, if we are ostensibly 
telling the truth. I told you generally we lie to get married. Didn't I tell you that you deceive each other about marriage? Oh, how I love you. I think about you 24 hours a day. No, you really think about yourself. You just need somebody to help facilitate your dream. It's really true. It's really true. When we want to get married, it's about us. So here we are out here on these two, two extreme ends. And once we're in covenant, we're obligated to move towards each other. So that obligation of moving towards each other and minimizing the proximity space is about engaging in communication and, and cooperation and collaboration and cultivation. We've talked about that before, right? Because that's the only way you're going to get close. And, uh, and, and that's the process. So that's the resolve and integrity of the covenant. And so it is what we talk about in psychology, attraction, attachment, and then connection, right? We are attracted to each other. We go through the process of moving closer until we are attached. And that attachment resolves itself in the connection called covenant, right? That's that process. If we follow the process carefully. So when Paul is talking about this in our text, all of this is in his mind. He's a Hebrew. He's a believer. He's a Christian. For him, he's saying that fornication, which is a, an essential mechanistic privileging component in marriage is not to be experienced outside of marriage <clears throat> if we want what fornication um, is alluring us into to be as it was designed by God, okay? So as, as sex was designed by God to be, fornication does not meet that paradigm. It doesn't meet that model. It doesn't produce that phenotype. It doesn't create that optic, Am I making some sense? Right. So that's the thing that you need to know. Uh, sex outside of marriage is not safe. Sex outside of marriage is not sanctified. Sex outside of marriage does not secure the relationship. It's not safe. It doesn't sanctify. It doesn't secure. Sex outside of marriage and the context and the covenant and the promises and the predications to it simply exacerbate the two because the two are engaging in selfish reciprocity that is not undergirded by the integrity of love and obligation. Does that make some sense? So it creates a, a precariousness that's absolutely today pathological. A precariousness that's pathological. What I mean by that is in a society where fornication is like ipso facto two days after you meet somebody, what you have done is open the door for levels of distortion at the emotional and psychological level that are detrimental to your character and personality, and it can be that way for your whole life. So what we know about people that practice fornication is that people that practice fornication become shallow. They cannot be deep because they are objectifying other human beings for merely gratification purposes. Did that come home? Right. So you, you, you the man or the woman that is looking for one thing, sex. Uh, Richard, I got your phone. That, come on up. Um, that's looking for one thing, which is sex. That person is shallow. She is shallow. We've got a generation of children that are utterly shallow. Shallow. They're making all kind of money because they're, they're, they're sexing it up. But they're shallow. And they have no idea about, about deep, profound, co co uh, cohering, and uh, committed relationships at the healthy emotional, psychological level. So this is really what Paul is talking about. So under subpoint. Uh, see in our outline what I am speaking to is what is called reciprocal giving <clears throat> or it's agape of the body. Reciprocal giving or agape of the body. You guys know what agape means, right? What does it mean? It means a love that gives and not takes. It means a love that gives and not takes. Make sure Richard comes and gets his phone because he, he was looking for it. It's up here. It's a love that gives and not takes. So let's touch on that just for a little bit, a little bit, because when Paul said to avoid fornication, let every man 
get married and we're getting ready to get into the the uh, again the the uh, the constituent parts here the way he framed it is very good so we got a few more minutes to deal with this so what i would contend is that if we're going to endeavor to marry we must endeavor to train ourselves to be committed to a life of selflessness All right, so I'm going to show you what I mean by that. What I mean by selflessness is serving the other. That's what I mean. So if I'm going to marry, I have to train myself to know that I'm going into this to give myself to that other person. And and you have to train yourself that way. Because human beings are not born giving. Your child doesn't say once he begins to talk, here, mommy, here, daddy. No, no, it's give me, give me, give me, give me. That's deep down in our DNA, our chromosome, this deep down in our biological essence. Give me. And, and two give me people cannot do marriage well at all. <laughs> so... When I say when I say that heterosexual marriage over fornication is because heterosexual marriage includes privilege and problems of in- intimacy, you're going to have 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 those challenges in marriage. Uh, the resolving integrity of covenant is that you are committed to the twain. What becoming? Becoming. The the goal here is to make sure obstacles don't stop this process. And then thirdly. The way it's going to happen is that both parties are committed to agape. They're both committed to giving. What a radical way of thinking. But but that was that was in our traditional covenant covenant marriage framework. I give myself to thee. I will love you till death do us part. Right? And all of the different vows that underscore, I I have prepared myself to pour myself into this other person and I'm doing it from a a, a position of agape or or, or divine love that has the capacity to flow through me to that other person so I'm not worried about being defrauded did that make some sense maybe it maybe it did maybe it didn't but what what God is saying in the context of marriage if it's going to be a picture of Christ in the church we're going to touch on it I can't go into the marriage with a kind of love that if I pour into that other person and I don't get back from them, I'm just going to fall apart. So that's not an agape. Now, if I want something from that other person, here's also what I got to make sure has occurred on their side of the equation, that they too are a giver. Because if they are not a giver, and I am, then I better be absolutely content with God pouring into me to give to them and not be expecting anything back. Did that come home? All right. This this, this is why my boys, this is Peter, James, and John. Well, then who can, man, ain't nobody getting married. If I got to do that, I am not getting married. I'm staying single. That's what they said. Lord Jesus, this is way too hard. Right, and that's why Christ responded by saying, yeah, it's impossible with men. Like, so if marriage is going to be done, two people have to be committed to a fountain that flows into them and through them to each other. Am I making some sense? All right, so I hope this helps because... When we don't understand this, we have a horrible time in relationships. All right, so I hope that helps. Look at verse 4 and 5. I'm going to do one more, and then we're going to shut it down. Look at verse 4 and 5. Actually, start with me at verse um, verse 3 and 4. Because it comes in at the latter part of 2, and I want this to come home, because this is going to be good. So, 
Uh, verse 2 says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife, do what? Proper expectation. Proper expectation. And likewise also the wife unto the what? Because, this is what we call an exegetical, in verse 4, watch this, the wife does not have power over her own body. She doesn't wake up every day saying, it's just me, myself, and I. And the job of my husband is just to give me, 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 give me. Like from a biblical perspective, what, what, so I've already told you is there's a difference between being a man and being a husband. There's a difference between being a husband and being a father. Now, a biblical husband and father is a man. <laughs> it's always weird listening to these same-sex marriages talking about my husband. A long-bearded brother with a deep voice. Yeah, my husband said. I'm like, dude. <laughs> right. My goodness. It's another thing, it's another thing to be a woman, but it doesn't mean you are a wife. And you might or might not be a, a, a mother. Some marriages don't, you know, replicate. So if we're going into marriage with the purpose of it co-joining and, and replicating, these three tiers have to actually harmonize and prioritize. I actually have to be a good man if I'm going to be an adequate husband. I actually have to be a good woman if I'm going to be an adequate wife. Think about it, because the wife and the husband actually have to give themselves away to that other person. Does that make some sense? Right? Because that's the language that Paul is drawing here. And, and I don't hear that in people in America. Like, I feel like I'm out on a raft as a pastor for the last 30 years when it comes to marriage. Like, marriage is like hunting season. The moment you go to talking about marriage, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm like an uh, exotic bird that's about to get shot for telling the truth, for real. And, and this is something I discovered even early on in, in my ministry that we are not at a significantly biblical level thinking marriage the way that God has set it up. I'm talking about us saved folk. I'm talking about Christians. Right, because when you listen to them, we go, whoa, oh, man, that's so worldly. Oh, that's so human. Whoa, that's so natural. Whoa, that's so carnal. Whoa, that's so fleshly. Right? Like, and it's, and it's, it's given as gospel our attitudes. And I go, no, no. Your body is not yours. Did you read that? Your body is not yours. So, I mean, if we were, I mean, we could go a long way with this. We could stretch this out. You mean what? You mean when I what when I put that nice suit on and and said yes, I lost control of my body? Yes, you did. Um so there you go. And so what the text tells us in verse five, and we have our, our sub point, we'll be ready, we'll shut this one down. The wife has not power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband has not power over his own body. Point number two, the exception that maintains spiritual approval. The exception that maintains uh, spiritual approval. The exception that maintains spiritual approval is a quality of marriage that Paul is saying requires you to not. That's why I have two do nots. So point A, do not withhold from each other. You guys got that? 
Do not withhold from each other. There might be a typo in your outline. I don't think it is. That's Ephesians 5.25 on the part of the men. Do not withhold from each other. Men, love your wives. That's Ephesians 5.25.8. You guys see that? Husbands, what? I shall stop right there. If love here is agape, and it is, it means you're giving. That's an imperative. I mean, I love my wife. Well, what does that look like? Right? So, because whatever it looks like will be the definition of that word love. It can be phileo. You can have fond feelings of your wife. Man, I just, when I think about her, I have warm feelings for her. It's not agape. You know, when I think about my wife, man, I get hot for her. That might be eros, but that's not agape. Okay, and don't get me wrong. I understand the biological imperative is a beautiful thing, but that's not agape. That is the dynamic of love that is taking. Now, that body is yours. Don't get me wrong. That body is yours. But if the underlying reciprocity is not there, we're going to have some real problems with getting at that body, aren't we? (laughs) David said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So the exegetical in that is a kind of sacrificial love which is painfully um, and obviously difficult for every man. Painfully and obviously difficult for every man to love a woman in a way that is sacrificial. We don't do it, and we don't do it well. Husbands don't do it well. If you get a good man, you got to give him some time to learn how to do that. Right. It's just it's just not intrinsically the 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 fundamental thing to love sacrificially like Christ. Right. So there's a tension in marriage. You ought to know that it's paradoxical in nature, isn't it? I already told you we lie to each other to get married. It's called deception. We have our needs. And once we get into the marriage, what intercepts? agape is dunamis. What intercepts agape is dunamis, power. Power dynamics are taking place now. Power dynamics. Where the man is exercising power of demand or the woman is exercising power of restraint. Does that make some sense? Power of demand, power of restraint is defrauding each other. That's how you defraud each other. You just married your adversary. Ephesians 5.22, Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. And, and that, that term idios there, um, uh, is, it, it means to only submit to him in the way in which a covenant marriage is calling submission. A woman doesn't submit to everybody else the way she is to submit to her own husband. But that is the woman's Achilles heel right here. We know that going all the way back to the Genesis account. Women don't naturally want to come up under their man. They don't want to come up under, and that's what that word hypostasis uh, means. It means to come up under and take a place of submission to his leadership. And your, what your body would look like in, in your being persuaded that that's his body is that you would be functioning in subordination at the relational level, cooperating with him in order for him to be all that he needs to be in order for you to have all that you need to have in that reciprocal relationship. Did that make sense? So if a man is giving in the way of loving, and if the woman is submitting in the way of loving, now we have a feedback loop, a positive feedback loop going on. Because what she's doing is simply subordinating herself to an overall plan that they've agreed upon to make marriage to flourish and develop into that which they are wanting marriage to be. Remember, marriage is not just about you two. I'm back at our ROE, aren't we? Are we not? Marriage is, and this is, so if you reduce marriage down to just your person and his person, that's not marriage. Marriage is a domain. 
Marriage is a space. Marriage is a landscape. Marriage is a plan. Marriage is a system. Marriage is an economy. Marriage is a structural, systematic economy that's requiring functional persons to actually cultivate and produce in that that marriage domain. And that means both persons are functioning like Adam and Eve did in the garden, which was their domain. Did that make some sense? So every day they both going to work. Every day they're both going to work, cultivating that domain. The man's doing his part, she's doing her part. Whatever that may be, they may be switching back and forth, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of the domain. But there is a hierarchy of relationship where the man is leading, she is supporting, and therefore they are reciprocating. That's biblical. That's absolutely biblical, but it's hard to do. So under point number two, do not withhold from each other. So point B, do not take from each other. You guys see that? Do not withhold and do not take. Do not withhold. Those are two different actions. You do know that, right? Withholding is just, nope, you can't have it. Taking is, give me that. <laughs> Boy, we could be here for an hour. <laughs> Titus 2, 4, and 5. I'm almost done with point number two. Uh, I'll just deal with the last one and just kind of tie a bow on it for a moment. Titus 2, 4, and 5. So this is, God reiterates this to pastors and elders and and mature women in the church. This is the word to mature men and women in the church. Verse 3 will start us, because I'm in the middle of the verse. The aged women, mature women, likewise, that in behavior becomes holiness. The, the aged women, this is very profound. Okay, so I, I should not even hang out here long. But what this has to do is a mature person has come to that place whereby she knows the parameters of her responsibility and are seriously committed to it and has no interest in spreading herself out so far into the world that she is no longer consecrated to her domain. Did that make some sense? Right. So holiness is not about what you look like and how you dress. I know just, just stop all that. Okay, just let's stop with that. I mean, you can maybe there's a derivative there. Maybe there's a derivative. But holiness is simply commitment to my calling. Commitment to my calling. The age of women also in behavior demonstrating commitment to their calling. And if you are committed to your calling and you are functioning in that, that's going to be an absolutely stunning witness to everybody around you. Because that means you're not hanging out with every other group of people, every other situation, every other opportunity, because that means you're not at home or within the confines of that marriage. Am I making some sense? Right. And so he says, not given to being false accusers, not given to much wine, and teachers. Uh, a mature woman is a teacher of what? Good things. And the emphasis back there, can you stay for a second, T? And the emphasis back there as a teacher of good things, y'all got that? The, the, the construct there is that teaching by example. It's not that you're developing a three-point outline with subpoints like PJ and you're going around teaching women. No. No. It's teaching by example. Um, a, a woman that is clear on her mission and calling is a teacher of good things and therefore you are not going to have a lot of friends. You are not going to have a lot of friends if you are committed to your marriage. All right, verse 4. That they may teach the younger women to be sober and to also love their husbands. Do you see it? To love their children that is prioritize them now so like the last line then we're gonna stop right here we'll pick this up on next tuesday the the last line loving your children is so natural so ingrained so obvious right who wouldn't love their children children need you to love them T children need you to pour into them they expect you to agape them right everybody else on the planet does too 
But in the same way you have the imperative to occupy your children, you have the imperative to occupy your husband. Do you see that? So not only does a man have to occupy the wife, the wife has to occupy the husband. That's what I meant. There has to be that mutual predisposition to giving. That has to be the underlying currency. The currency in the home that allows us to have a bank account full of uh, positive reciprocal overtures and, and, and dynamics in the relationship is a constant flow of agape. That makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? All right.